So, how about them iPads? The iPad didn't get mentioned at all, even once, in the Apple event. I may have been a little bit wrong about that. (sighs) I feel really good about all the predictions that I made on the last episode, because they were mostly accurate. I, I don't remember any of it. What did you predict? I actually compiled a list the other day. Wasn't it something like um there'll be oh no that was Ben there'll be a video with Johnny Ive in his white room. Uh, we definitely did do that, and there was there was actually two of them. There was two. So but one that, of the predictions but that's like predicting the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Yeah, I mean, but that's... one one of the predictions that I had was that there would be uh, advertisements for the Apple Watch, which there was one. Yep. One of them I I said that one of them would be for the edition, and that didn't happen. So I was wrong there. And not only was there not an ad for the edition, they didn't really. We, we didn't even get to see a gold. Video. There was like all these videos well, about they, the processes and they the material. Showed they showed the gold video when they announced the watch back in, I want to say, October. Oh, so there is a gold video. Yes, there is a gold video. We just didn't get to see it. And in fact, I saw the other day a breakdown of all three videos by somebody f- that works in that industry. So explaining what all of the bits and pieces oh, cool. were. It was actually really cool. I'll have to find it and maybe put it in the notes. Please do. I'd like to watch it. Well, it's not a video. It's a blog post. So you won't Please watch do. It. I'd like to Read it. Yes. That is what you do with blog posts. That's one of the bits I like most about Apple's events marketing lately is the manufacturing process videos. Mm -hmm. I think I just get a real kick out of it. I really like seeing the stuff. Was it in the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs about how Steve Jobs visited a factory in Japan and came back to the States and wanted a factory full of robots? And so they spent lots and lots of money on them and then he wanted to paint them and then they didn't work. I don't know. If it was in there, I didn't get that far in. Oh, really? <laughs> I didn't finish. I never finished the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs. I got maybe halfway through it and then just kind of went, yeah, okay. Okay. You're probably not missing much. I mean, it wasn't the world's best book, but it sounds like you did miss a story about a robotic factory where the robots then got painted and didn't work. Sounds like a fascinating story. Hmm. <laughs> but I think you're right. Like the that those videos are really are really kind of cool they give you a bit of insight into how the process happens and i mean obviously they don't show everything because you know there's they have their own special techniques that they don't want you know their competitors to get a hold of but Hmm. you know i I, like i read the through this description of what all these different processes were and i was like oh wow that's that's really cool yeah it's fascinating i can imagine their video about the apple car you can just see the (laughs) factory footage or maybe it'll be like the uh the apple car will be, like, not that interesting because, I mean, we've all seen video of car production lines. Oh, I thought I had until I watched that documentary about how <laughs> Bugatti make the Veyron. Yes, the one that we mentioned last episode. Do you know that instead of moving the car along different stations in a production line, there's, like, a dedicated station for each car and the yeah. things are brought to it? That makes sense given the given the, the extreme hand, hand bespokeness. bespokeness of the, yeah, yep. of the... Uh, of the car. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And they showed some, like, m- machine they have to join. They, like, have the front half of the car and the back half of the car separate. And at some point, they push the two together. And they're mounted on these, like, stands that obviously move along a track to be able to move close together. Yep. And they have, like, steel kind of plates across the top of the track to keep dust or whatever out. And as they push the two halves together, the steel flaps kind of concertina open in front of the moving stand and then Constantina close again behind the moving stand, like a zip, unzipping and zipping back up. Oh. It's really quite beautiful. That's like cool. they've manifest they've made this equipment just to move the two halves of the car together when they need to. Yeah. And yeah. So it made me again think of what Apple's car factory would be like. That and I've been reading um 
Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I'm I, pretty sure it's not going to be like Charlie. It's going to be Factory. exactly like Charlie and the Chocolate <laughs> it'll Factory. It'll be. It'll have a boat going down a chocolate river. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the inside of Apple is not the same. They don't make chocolate for one. Uh, but if they did, I think it would be identical. And I think that if they hired Oompa Loompas, their diversity quota would be much higher than it is. Maybe. Because aren't Oompa Loompas from like some distant country? Oompa Loompa land. Yes. Yeah. That, that sounds accurate. <laughs> we should actually get started on, you know, an actual episode because otherwise we're going to be here forever. Okay. So... Hi, you are listening to Mobile Couch, and this is a show where we talk about the building of cars. Apparently, I don't, I don't really. I just know. do want to just. We're not completely aside here because there are parallels between the Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Willy Wonka, a little bit like Steve Jobs. <laughs> Maybe I'm conflating the two in my fantasy world because I want to win a golden ticket that lets me go on a backstage tour for the Apple Factory. Oh, I see. Yeah, anyway, sorry. Time soon. This show is hosted by Jake McMullen. Hello. And Ben Trengrove, who is off at NS Conference. Conference. And it's NS Conf. Conf. It, I, I think it's I think it is a called an NS Conference as well. As NS Conf. Conf. I'm just gonna call it Conf, because that's what I keep seeing it as. Uh the last in its current form. Really? Hmm. That's sad. It is. But happy for Ben, who's there. Who is there? Because it's actually like near where he lives. Hmm. Hi Ben. We miss you, Ben. Hope you're enjoying the conference. And it's also hosted by myself, Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. And this is episode number 53, I think, off the top of my head. And you sent notes. Yeah. Well, I've I've been thinking about... I've been, strangely, since the last time we spoke, I've, in fact, been doing mobile development. Really? Mm. And I have some thoughts about it. Okay. Uh, But first of all, we have a little bit of follow-up. We do. From Um, the last episode. Well, did you want to go through... Your predictions of the watch? No. Okay. That's not interesting. I want to claim a little bit of slightly rightness, although I was completely wrong about the iPads. You were definitely wrong. That there was something other than the watch. I was the one that suggested the the 12-inch yeah, uh, MacBook Yeah, I'd completely Air, forgotten about it. And isn't which it, isn't actually an Air. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. I want one. It's not for me. I do actually use my USB, although not very, not a huge amount. Like I could do without them, but I definitely I definitely use my Thunderbolt because I mean, yeah, <laughs> I'm pointing at my big Thunderbolt monitor. So I don't have an external display. I had one, but I hadn't plugged into it for about a year, so I sold it. That's the other problem is that the twelve like. 15 inch is already too small for me when I walk when I take this away to somewhere like I I struggle with how kind of contained it is. Yep, I and agree. I don't think I could handle with handle something even smaller. So I have the exact opposite feeling about my laptop as I do about my phone. So I've I have the iPhone 6 Plus. Yep. And I think it is way too big except when I'm using it when it's fantastic. <laughs> Wait. So why don't you have the 6 then? I got the 6 Plus because I wanted to get the one that was most different from what I'd experienced before so that I'd learn the most about what it's like to have a big screen phone. Okay, so are you going to, next time you get a new phone, are you going to get the 6 or the, no, are you going to get the large one? I think smaller? I'll stick with the 6 Plus because although it's too big when I'm not using it, when I am using it, the screen is fantastic. Okay, so larger form factor as opposed to the smaller one for you. Yeah, when I'm using it. And I use it enough that I can cope with the fact that it's too big when I'm not using it. And my laptop is exactly the opposite. So... I have the 13-inch Air as my only computer, and I do all my development on it, and I don't have an external display. And the screen is way too small when I'm using it. Yep. But when I'm not using it, I love the fact that it's so portable and light. And so I just carry it around. I don't even feel it in my bag, really. 
And I, I've gotten so used to that mm-hmm. now. Whenever I pick up a, like from time to time, I've used colleagues' 15-inch Retina MacBook Pros and the Retina screen is just gorgeous. It is gorgeous. And the extra screen space feels incredibly spacious. Like, you can, you know, you know how much I love storyboards. Yep. I can actually see more than half of one's view at a time. <laughs> but as soon as I pick it up, it just weighs a ton. I will give you that they are heavier than I would like. Like, I carry this. I don't carry this as much at the moment because obviously I just go to work and I already have a computer there, so I don't take it in. But when I was doing free, when I was doing like freelance client work on this thing and carrying it places or, you know, going into a client's office or whatever with this thing, it is weighty and it means carrying, usually carrying around a backpack because carrying it around in the sleeve is too, mm. it, like it's just too much of a pain. That said, I think there's a trade-off to be made and don't get me wrong, I'm not against the 12 inch. Uh, I'm, I'm not MacBook. against the the MacBook because, and a lot of people I think have problem with it because you know it doesn't have enough ports or whatever. I only ever use one. Well, on, on my Air, like all I ever all I ever plug into it. Well, I will use my MagSafe because the battery doesn't last anymore. So power, and then I plug in a Lightning cable to connect to. Yeah, but you don't even have I'm... either of those. You you only have one. Yeah, but uh, presumably I would have a battery that lasted more than three hours, which well, is where it, I've got my Well, that's grammar. true. Yeah, it's supposed to last all day. But the thing is, well, I mean, then you've also got to have some form of method for changing to regular USB because there's no USB to USB-C to lightning. lightning. Oh, there will be, surely. I don't think they've, I don't think they've, they've come out with one. Yeah, but so. they will. Well, They'll have to. I think maybe, maybe some point in the future we'll probably get like wireless debugging. I'm pretty sure that Ben predicted that, so I'm just, I'm just copying Ben, aren't I, Ben? insert like a yes you are here. <laughs> yeah so i like but i don't think it's i don't necessarily think it's a computer for you know developers but i think n- nor is the um 13 inch macbook air that i use for no all it's my development. but then you can like yeah I, I think it's even less i think it's less a, a computer for developers than the, the air is like i think that probably what's going to end up happening is that the air will go away and I reckon the air will go away probably within about 12 months and it'll just be replaced with this thing. And maybe we'll get even like an 11-inch version of this one, maybe. Maybe. But I don't. I definitely think that this is kind of the new consumer computer, which is yeah. excellent for, you know, typing essays on or, you know, doing yeah. surfing on the couch so if you want to I, do that. I, I'd like to stand up as a defender for this sort of computing device for development on because really... Maybe I'm nuts for doing my development on air. And I have certainly thought about buying something else. Yeah. What I'd really like is a Retina iMac on a desk that I sit at when so, I'm sitting at a desk. Yep. And probably the new MacBook as the portable device to carry around. Yeah. But I can't really justify the expense of having these two separate devices and the hassle of having to make sure. Like, so why not have like an external monitor that you plug in? Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be a thumb because I can't display. get a Retina one. Yeah, but you can get a like what what size external monitor does the new MacBook support? Four K. How is that not just as good as a a Retina? I mean, obviously it's not Retina, but it's still so it's pretty going to be pretty good. I could potentially do that, but then you'd so the MacBook is a little bit underpowered compared to the MacBook Pro, for example. But I kind of feel like a you can actually do serious development with a machine that's slightly slower. Like it's. Yes, yeah. I would see I would see shorter compile times if I had a faster CPU. Yep. And it would be much easier to edit storyboards if I had a bigger screen. Were you complaining about long compile times like oh my. A, like 2 weeks ago? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Swift hey. Swift 1.0 is slow. So this I think this is a good segue speaking yeah, of we, storyboards. Yeah, we actually do need to get onto actual development stuff so, like So I was super excited. Um one of the major Swift apps I've been working on, we shipped 
the first version of a few weeks ago. Yep. Just shipped a bug fix today. The biggest bug that was impacting users and subsequently the rating for the app was a mistake I made about audio categories. So as a media is an app to allow people to watch video and I forgot to set the audio session to the category that is for media playback. Oh, right. So by default, if you don't set that and a user has set the ringer silent switch to silent, your app won't make any sound. But users don't understand that because media playback apps typically ignore the ringer silent switch and any video you trigger will have sound. And so we were getting a whole heap of people saying this app doesn't work, it doesn't make any sound, when it was because people had the mute switch turned on. Turned on. So mm. that was the big bug that needed fixing. So if you're in the same category, the, the right thing to do, and this is according to Apple's documentation too, is that if media playback is one of the predominant features of your app, then you should choose an audio category for your app that allows that sound to play irrespective of the setting of the ring of silence switch. Right. If it's not core functionality but is coincidental to your app, then you should spec respect the ring of silence switch, which makes sense. Yeah. yeah it so makes it's sense. really that switch is to silence alerts and notifications and incidental sounds. It's not really meant to silent media playback sounds. Mm. But then the other one, another bug in there was uh, blurry images, which was we'll get to in a little bit, I think. Well, what about the accessibility stuff that we talked about last week oh yeah we talked about so we talked about on the last episode yes so some follow-up for that as well did you manage to fix the problem that we were having with accessibility so to recap you had a gesture-based method for getting into the parental controls section which was like a random number of fingers do a gesture in a particular direction that's right that's also random which broke with accessibility on so did you manage to fix that yes so we replaced that with instead of requiring a particular gesture, you have, when you access the parent section, the app asks you to enter some numbers. And the sentence that tells you what numbers to enter picks three random numbers. Yep. Three random digits yep. between zero and nine. Uh, and it spells them out as words. And the app is targeted to preschoolers who are unlikely to be able to read words. So you've got to be able to read the sentence recognize the words describing the digits in the sentence and then type those digits in the order that it asks you to. And that kind of proves that you're growing up enough to get into that section. But what about if you've got accessibility turned on because it'll just read those words out? Exactly. So in the event that accessibility is turned on, the UI is similar, but instead of asking you to enter four digits, it asks you to enter the sum of two digits. So it'll say, please enter the sum of five and seven. Okay. And figure that preschoolers probably won't be able to understand i mean even if they can figure out how to add two numbers together we're choosing the language sum instead of add you know something that's a little bit more targeted to the grown-ups so i think it's a good solution that even with voiceover turned on uh you can get through those controls and hopefully the, the voiceover reading out the instructions isn't sufficiently instructive to allow a preschooler to get through yeah so the update has all of those things in it which is good submitted today hopefully it'll be go approved and go through soon cool but the thing that is i'm super excited about is uh potentially now being able to switch to swift 1.2 and having shorter compile times so last couple of days i've um migrated the code base and having done so i'm now wondering whether i should continue down the path of swift 1.2 or not i don't know i really really want to so when do you think swift 1.2 is going to be out because it's attached to 8.3 it is attached yeah. to 8.3 and xcode 6 beta something or other 6.3 i don't know i have no idea and that's my problem i don't think 
that you can rely on any time frame. It seems like Apple have been pretty like they're not waiting until things like WWDC before shipping updates. Like the Swift 1.2 beta has been out for a month or so now, and they seem to be shipping incremental improvements to Swift pretty quickly. So assuming I didn't have to submit the next major version of this app for months, yep. then maybe Swift 1.2 will be out of beta by then. But I don't know that I want to rely on it. So I think having done this process of porting it to Swift 1.2, I might actually leave that branch sitting there and go back to my main branch and continue development in Swift 1 until I've got a better picture about when Swift 1.2 is likely to be available for use for submitting apps to the App Store yeah, and or I understand more the time frame of this project because I don't want to – it's obviously a client project and I'm not going to take a risk like that with a client project of having it something that we can't release when they want to be able to release it. Well, also, if it's still in beta, there's every chance that it will you know, change. I mean, it's changed – Swift has changed a lot since they first announced it last year, so yeah, definitely. There's every I'm, chance. I'm less worried about that. Like I've heard some people say, "Oh, I haven't bothered learning Swift yet," or "I'm not feeling worried about not being part of Swift yet because it's changing so quickly." And if I invested too heavily in 1.0, haven't they gone and broken everything in 1.2? And I guess I would rather be using it and keeping up to date with the changes and sort of right. tracking the changes as they happen but rather than waiting until it's fully settled. Right, but that's not actually what we're talking about, though. Like, I understand both sides of that argument because I'm on one side and you're on the other. <laughs> but more to your point of, like, it's if it's changing so much and you're not going to, like, you don't want to take that risk on a client project. But it's, I'm not so much worried about the changes. I'm worried about not being able to... So, what if uh, we get to a point with this app where they want to release a new version in, I don't know, some time frame, and Apple is still not accepting submissions in Swift 1.2? What do we do? That's what I'm worried about. Yep. I'm not worried about that we use 1.2 and halfway through the project, it changes, a new language feature is added or something that we're relying on the syntax changes. Because I feel like those changes are pretty simple to deal with. So for, as, as an indication, this app's got about 10,000 lines of Swift code in it, and it took, it took me a couple of hours to get it compiling in Swift 1.2. I don't feel like that's a huge, you know, it's not like I had to spend a whole week or there was masses and masses of, you know, every single line changed. Generally, even though Swift 1.2 introduced a fair few changes from one, it's a pretty smooth process to go through and update the code. So if there was anything else that changed in between this beta of 1.2 and when it goes into production, I again feel like it would probably only be a small change and it would be easy enough to find the instances of the code that use it. Yeah, fair enough. But just, I just thought it'd be interesting to talk a bit about what I had to do in that process, like the main things that I encountered in that code base. Yeah. So basically, as I mentioned, it's about 10,000 lines of code. It took me a couple of hours to get it compiling in Swift 1.2. A lot of it was changing. Uh, so Swift has an as operator. Maybe that's the right word for it, for casting. So instead of having the type you want to cast to in parentheses in front of the method call or whatever, you have yep. um, the word as and then the type that you're casting it to. So it'll be like the a variable as class. Yeah, exactly. And there's now different variants of the as uh, operator. Uh, as with an exclamation mark is called a forced cast, which basically will cast it to a specific type. And in the event that you can't cast it to that specific type, will cause a crash. Okay. A question mark, I think, maybe they're calling it an optional cast, will, in the event that it can cast it as that specific type, will. In the event that it can't, it will return a nil. Okay. And I think now you have to choose one of those. You can't just use the non-adorned as operator. Really? So I had to go through everywhere where I was using as and pick one to kind of 
you know, and I think most places I use the forced cast because it's it's things like where eventually generics will be, the APIs will be updated to use generics so you can specify the type that you're going to get back. Where, but at the moment, you just have to know as a programmer. So for example, collection view where you're DQ, DQing a reusable cell with an identifier, you generally know the class that you're going to get back. Yep. But the method doesn't allow you to parameterize it and say, whenever I call this method, give me back a specific subclass. It's always you're given back. You know, its signature is your return to UI collection view cell. Yeah. And it's up to you to cast it to the type that you know that it is. Yeah. Coco is kind of full of those sorts of things where you know as a developer because you've set it up that way that you're going to get back a specific subclass. And so you just cast it. Um, and so most of mine, I just changed it to a, a, a forced, forced cast. cast. Because you because you know it's not actually going to give you back anything yeah. else. Yeah, and if it gives me back anything else, it's because there's a design time problem. I've made a mistake in, like I used it, there was a typo in the type somewhere. Or yeah, right. So that was pretty straightforward. The biggest amount of time was actually dealing with Hanik. So I'm using the Swift version of Hanik. So it's a native. Hanik Swift. Hanik Swift, um, which is really nice. And earlier on, we discussed whether it works on iOS 7 and 8, and it does work on 7. I've been using it. Or a couple of apps now I'm using it and they both target iOS 7 and 8. Yep. And it works fine without a problem. I think it's like, I think it technically possibly works on 7, but it's not supported. Yeah, I think they've now, people have run all the tests on 7 and I think there are now instructions on how to use it on 7. It's okay. just the maintainer basically says, sure, if that works for you, great. So Hanique Swift makes use of a feature of Swift that I haven't used much myself before, uh, which is auto-closures. And they've changed a bit between 1 and 1.2. So what what are auto-closures? I'm glad you asked because I had to ask myself that exact same question. What is an auto-closure? Yeah, well, I don't I don't think Objective-C has those because Objective-C doesn't have closures. Well, so Objective-C has closures. Yeah, well, they're blocks, blocks right. but they're not called closures. No, they're called blocks, but it doesn't have auto-blocks. <laughs> it oh. could do. <laughs> but it doesn't. It just, auto blocks sounds like something from like Transformers or something. Yeah, cool. <laughs> um, so auto closures are something from Transformers. Uh, no, an auto closure is uh, basically so it's the ability to write a function that takes an expression as an argument and it automatically wraps that expression in a closure. So, for example, uh, Apple have got a great blog post explaining on their Swift blog how they build the assert function in swift yep so assert you pass into assert an expression that returns a boolean and a string that you want it to just print if in the event that that boolean evaluates to true right so what you're passing in is is basically an expression um like you might say so it's it's like so if assert is basically then like a an if statement that is like if this equals true then print this yeah exactly and what you might pass in is say x greater than two if x greater than two comma, yes, whatever. And it'll print yes in the event that X is greater than two. Yeah. Now, what they've actually done to build a cert in Swift is that they used an auto-closure. So although the assert function takes a kind of unadorned expression, just so X greater than two, what it in reality does is it wraps that in a closure. Right. Um, and what that means that you can do is that it needn't be evaluated straight away. So if it wasn't wrapped in a closure, where the compiler got to the line where it said assert, x greater than 2, comma, yes. It would evaluate x greater than 2 there and then. Right. And assert is like a debug tool. And the idea behind it in the C-based languages that have had it is that it uses sort of preprocessor directives so that if you're compiling in a debug mode, 
it'll actually evaluate all your asserts and print out the corresponding things. But if mm. you're in a release build, it'll ignore those code paths. But Swift didn't have the sort of preprocessor. It's just got the compiler. So they wanted to achieve a similar thing where they wanted to make it no cost to have asserts in your code. So what they've done is auto-closure where the expression is wrapped in a closure and that closure is only executed in the event that you're in debug mode. Right. So it basically allows you to delay the execution of an expression. Right. So then basically what it what it's doing is the if statement is actually only getting run. So it's more like if debug and x is greater than two. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it basically lets you pass an expression around and have it evaluated at the moment that you want it evaluated. Right. And closures generally can do more than that. So closures can let you pass ex- pass things around, store them, return them, you know, call another function with a function that'll be executed later. I mean, blocks do the same thing. Yeah. Um, but an auto closure, yeah, specifically is for yeah, delaying the execution of an expression or potentially you want to, might want to execute it multiple times. Like you might want to have a function that takes an expression and it actually can execute that many times in a loop or something. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, the next question is when, why would you use an auto closure? And basically Apple's example of delayed execution is a good one. I had another question, which is why wouldn't you use it? Like, should these be used everywhere or are there, are there times where auto closures don't make sense? And Apple's um, documentation basically says, and I'm quoting now, there's no indication on the caller side that the argument evaluation is affected. So if you're calling a closure and you know you're calling a closure, then you can think about the consequences of that, that any variables you pass in might be captured by the scope of the closure. Right. This is where things like in Objective-C and blocks, you've got to worry about retain cycle. Yep. Like if you refer in the block to something that also like has a strong reference back to the block, you can have a retain cycle. And there's a variable in the scope of the block and the block somehow lives beyond when you're calling it, yep. then things can hang around longer than you might. You might think that your class is being deallocated, but it's not because the block that is somehow being called asynchronously or whatever has still got a strong reference back to the class that defined it and things yeah. like that. Um, so I think they're saying the same. That if When you use auto-closure, it turns like a, just a function call into, an, into a closure without it being clear to the calling code that that's what's happened. Yep. Um, so they've suggested that you only use it in limited circumstances, basically where they say use them when they provide useful semantics that people would expect, but don't use them just to optimize out the braces. Because a nice thing about auto-closures is um, if you're calling a closure in Swift, you have to use brace, curly braces. Curly brace, yep. So you generally have open parenthesis, open curly brace, the expression you're wanting to evaluate, close curly brace, close paren. And yep. that looks a bit like too much syntax. So it could be tempting to say, (laughs) there's too much syntax here. I want to get rid of my curly braces. I'm going to make everything that takes a closure an auto-closure. And then you never have to write curly braces. Um, And I think what Apple is saying, no, that's not what they're meant for. Yeah, that's not the idea. So enough about what auto-closures are. And this was all new to me as well. Like I had not come across them before. I hadn't thought to use them. Now that I've seen them, I'm thinking I'm trying to find excuses to get rid of my curly braces. Did did you not listen to what you just said? I know, but less curly braces. Um, (laughs) So what's changed in Swift 1.2 that has meant that I ran into this? So basically, there's a couple of changes. The syntax for marking something as an autoclosure has changed. So um, autoclosures, basically, if you have a parameter to your method, which is a closure, 
you can mark it as an auto closure, uh, in which case the calling code can omit the braces. Yep. And now you've got to move the auto closure annotation to before the parameter rather than after it. So it's just a syntax change that the compiler will do for you automatically. No biggie. Um, but the biggest and I guess more meaningful change is that auto closures now implicitly have another annotation, which is no escape. <laughs> oh no, there's no escape. <laughs> there, is, there is no escape. This, especially in this episode, there's going to be no escape from weird Swiftisms. Oh. What is no escape? Because <laughs> I had to ask that as well. Yeah, what is that? Uh, right. So, kind of makes sense. Again, I'll quote from Apple's release notes here. If you use the no escape annotation, this indicates that the parameter is only ever called or passed as a no escape parameter in a call, which means that it cannot outlive the lifetime of the call. That sounds a bit confusing to me. I think what they mean when they say this indicates that the parameter is only ever called means that the parameter is never assigned or stored. So if you think about the things you can do with a parameter that you pass into a function, you can assign them, you can store them, you can pass them to another function. If the parameter is a function itself, like closures are, you can call it. And what a no escape parameter is, is a closure where the compiler will guarantee that the only thing that's done with it is that it will be called or passed to another function that will call it straight away, that it will never be assigned and stored in a property of the call of the class right. and used later. Yep. So basically, if you've annotated a, a closure parameter as yeah. no escape, then the calling code can basically ignore any concerns about variables being captured because yeah. you're guaranteed that the closure that's capturing those variables will execute and be gone in the same lifetime as the call. Like it's not going to hang around later. Right. You couldn't like assign it to a variable and then hold on to it when, some, when something right. happens later on. Exactly. The compiler will stop you from doing that. Yeah. It's kind of cool. It's kind of basically, you know, you can imagine this in Objective-C with blocks. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a way of saying the block that, that you can pass as an argument to this method yep. will never be assigned. It's okay. You don't have to worry about it. That Just would be amazing. do what you like. Yeah. Swift 1.2 has it. It's called no, a no escape. And getting back to autoclosures and Hanique Swift, autoclosures now implicitly in Swift 1.2 have no escape. Right. So I think Apple are basically saying because autoclosures make it unclear to the calling code that you're actually calling a closure, yep. they're going to be no escaping closures by default. Well, that makes sense. To make it safer. Yeah. Safe. Yeah, exactly. So you may not know that this expression you're passing in is actually going to be treated as a closure, but it doesn't matter because we're never going to assign it or defer, you know, call it sometime later outside you're not you're not going to end up with any crazy reference cycles or anything like that yeah exactly except in Hanik, the closures that are annotated as auto closures are in fact assigned to properties oh and i'm not familiar enough with the Hanik code base to understand the rationale behind that yep i didn't really want to get into like picking it apart line by line to try and understand what was happening um so thankfully there is a variant of an auto-closure called an escaping auto-enclosure. Oh, gosh. You can annotate the parameter to say this is an escaping auto-enclosure. It's actually auto-enclosure in brackets, escaping, which lets you say that these auto-enclosures should continue to operate the way they did prior to Swift 1.2, which is they should be allowed to escape, as in you should be allowed to assign the closures to a variable and do what you like with it, which I think is kind of unsafe. So well, I yeah. think that's why it's no unsafe. longer the default. Right, but it, it lets you do it if you want to. Yeah. If you want to. So, in order to get Hanik 
compiling in 1.2. Basically, I had to ch- change most of the auto closures to escaping auto closures and a few other syntactic changes. And that was kind of it. That was where I spent most of my time. Um, interestingly, I created a fork of Hanik with a Swift 1.2 branch to do this in. And I was, after having done that, I then went back into the GitHub project to log an issue to say you should support Swift 1.2 and here's a branch that does it. Only to find two other people that have already done it. <laughs> so two other people have also forked Hanik and done these changes. They haven't been migrated back into the main repo yet. Were they the same changes? Did you look at Yeah, the- so I looked because I was really interested exactly to know. The same? Um, pretty much, yeah. Like okay. there's some subtle variations where you could make the compiler happy in two different ways that were semantically the same but syntactically different. Okay. Um, and they'd done that. But they basically did use the escaping auto closures in the same place as I had. Yeah. I mean, it do- to me, the, the idea sounds like the idea of these escaping auto closures sounds kind of not great. Like I understand that they've done like that they would have done it in order to make prior Swift code a lot easier to transition to 1.2. Yeah. That being said, if the whole point of moving auto closures to a no escape thing is to like is to remove the concern that you might have like the the non clarity of okay if this is an auto an auto closure then it's not going to hold on to anything like you don't have to worry about it mm. having escaping auto closures yes now, kind of breaks that it does, completely completely but it may, i wonder if there's like potentially compiler flags where you can say like in strict mode maybe you won't allow that well i or, think it's one of those things where i think maybe like it might become one of those things that's not like that's frowned upon and you just it's like it's like strings and copy like you can you can strong you know hold strong references to strings that's fine when you assign them to a mm. property or whatever but you know the the general consensus is you use copy mm. so maybe it'll be like that where it's just kind of one of these things that you just kind of have to do you yeah have to remember i think so and i just want i mean again i don't know enough about the rationale of using them in hanik and maybe there was a good reason and continues to be a good reason or maybe it was just it's syntactically nice and now that apple have changed this the developers of Hanik might want to go through and pick something other than autoclosures. I don't, I don't know. Mm. I kind of contemplated a different way. And initially I I went part way down the track of getting it to compile by changing the autoclosures to explicit closures. So you can just remove the autoclosure annotation from the um, function parameter. And then the calling code has to put in the braces before you can call it. So you have to, as a caller, explicitly say, I'm passing a closure into this function. Yep. And that works just as well. So but then I can I could I could imagine that let's consider these things as the equivalent of filter with predicate thing yeah. that um Objective C has. Yeah. Swift's got the same Swift has got the same thing. Imagine that instead of a predicate you could pass it a block which you know, like a closure. Yeah. And so why not then have that as being an auto escaping closure, but then it's gotta be run multiple you times. Mean an auto closure, yes. A non-escaping auto enclosure. Well, that's the thing. If it if it's an escaping auto enclosure, auto closure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if it's an escaping auto closure, then if for some reason you needed to uh, assign it to a variable and then do some stuff with it, and then it was gone. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think you could do it without allowing it to escape, so long as it was called. You can call it multiple times, for yeah. example. It's just, so long as it's called there and then that you don't. Um, you know, use GCD to dispatch async or you don't assign it to a property. Yeah, okay. Or you don't pass it as an argument to a function that will do one of those things. So basically, so long as you actually just call it, 
And you can imagine the implementation of sorting with a block would just call it, right? You'd you'd set up some loops and things. You'd do some loops and stuff. And call it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so I think I I kind of have learned a little bit more than I cared to about some of these features of Swift 1.2 because I hadn't used any of this in my code, right? I've definitely learned more than I cared to. And I found it kind of interesting. Like I can understand, I kind of jump to Swift's defense often. Um, no. Yeah, often I do. And a lot of people say, oh, like, is it harder or easier than Objective-C? And my kind of response is, well, it can be harder, but it can also be just as easy, if not easier, because it can have a simpler syntax. Yep. But I've just realized now that there are more concepts in Swift than there are in Objective-C. Right, but there is more safety in Swift. Than- yeah, but you've got to, like... To figure out what this compiler was complaining about when I first tried to build this code base in Swift 1.2, it took me a fair bit of reading to try and understand, to go through this whole process of like, I didn't even, what is an auto-enclosure? What is no escape? How does it apply now to auto-enclosures? And I kind of, I find it interesting, like, is the functionality afforded by that feature in the language worth the kind of complexity it adds to, to dealing with the language? Because it isn't something I'd used in my code base at all, and I my code functions fine without the existence of auto closure in it until I come to some third party code that, you know, I didn't write and that was probably written in a different style and with a different and probably better understanding than Swift than I have kind of forced me to learn about that concept. And yeah, I just, I can kind of start to feel what it's like to be approaching Swift and coming across all of these strange things. I don't necessarily think that that's any different to coming across Objective-C. Objective-C has just as many strange things about it. Like, I mean, the fact that you have to you know, be concerned about whether a block uh, a block is going to uh, capture your, you know, something that it has a strong reference to. Like, that's that's just as much of a brain jump yeah, the, right. as as an auto closure right and arc and things like that as yeah well. like it's there's a lot of there's a lot of brain jumps that you have to do with any sort of programming language i don't the, yeah. the thing about swift and i think the thing that is going to make swift succeed is that they're very they seem to be very um conscious of the fact that they want this to be a language that can be picked up by just about anybody um like the the language is designed it is being designed in such a way that you can use it just to write like I mean, it's essentially designed as a replacement for AppleScript, but also as a replacement for Objective-C, which mm. sounds and, and maybe C++. crazy. Well, and it sounds crazy, right? Yeah. Because there's all these different like you yeah. know, levels of complexity. And I, I, I kind of am starting to think it is crazy. Like, <laughs> it's weird because I have been arguing for the longest time that it can be as simple as you want it to be. But I think that's up until a point. And I found myself hitting that point just with this, right? So I'd used a third-party library and I, I hit the point of it had more complexity than I cared to deal with because it used features of the language that I hadn't come across before. And I kind of feel like you might even get there with the Swift standard library code itself that there, you may end up needing to know about internals of some... I don't know. I hope. I hope that... I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I, I think you might be. I think the fact that so much stuff is designed with you know safe mm. as the as the kind of you know key thing behind it and you know things things crash kind of because they've been built wrong not necessarily because they're like you've got these weird kind of uh things that might happen in a shipped app yeah i think it's a big it's i think it's a big deal mm. and i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna like be all you know 
Russian and use Swift 1.2 for your next project? Um, no. We'll, we'll see. I'm not against Swift, obviously, but I think it's one of these things where you, you have to decide whether or not it's right for what you're doing at this point. Because like you said before, like there are changes that are happening, right? Hmm. And it's all very well and good to you know want to be keeping up on that. But if you've got a code base that you need to make sure is kind of solid and long-term and you can submit stuff whenever you like, you've got to take those decisions very carefully. Yeah. And I'm not rational. I'm not rationalizing the fact that, you know, I haven't picked up Swift yet. And I mean, I've probably picked up more than some people have because just, I've been around it quite a lot. <laughs> Sorry, I think maybe. Um, but like, I think the the point is more that you have to kind of choose the right the right approach for your project. And if the mm. right approach is Swift, then that's excellent. Go for it. If Swift is moving too fast or is changing in too many ways uh, that your project won't be able to handle, or if Swift is not capable of running your project at this time, which I mean, it's pretty unlikely but there may be that case and then you don't like i, I it, you, you've got to make the right choice yeah definitely the thing um that i found interesting in this as well something i hadn't really done before is branching third-party code have you ever done that yeah or branching i mean forking forking third-party code so yeah i've done that before yeah i i it i found it reassuring um both in this and in fact the accessibility work that i was doing on this app prior to the swift 1.2 investigations and there were two cases where basically I ran into a limitation of third-party code I was using. And instead of just going, I give up, I can't work around this limitation. Like, were it UIKit that I ran into a limitation with? My choices are basically live with the limitation. Or give up. Figure out a hack. Yeah. Or give up. And, and, or, and or like just do it with something else instead of a built-in thing. But with third-party code, uh, you run into a limitation. Like, so with this one here, I'm like, okay, Hanik doesn't support Swift one point two. Yep. I could just fork the code, make yep. the changes that are necessary, and I can change my project to use my fork rather than to use the um master repo. Yep. Until such point that my fork is folded in or or probably one of the ones one that are done. One it of the several prior, ones. prior to me. Yeah. Um and in fact the other example was uh FX page control, which is uh, an objective C code base and is distributed using CocoaPods. And I was really impressed that CocoaPods makes it easy to switch the repo that you're using for a pod. You just have to point to the correct repo, right? Yeah, exactly. So I yeah. um, FX Page Control is by Nick Lockwood, and it's a replacement for UI Page Control where you can customize aspects of the little dots. Yeah, okay. Like to make them bigger, for example. Yeah, okay. Or further apart, or a different shape, or a different color. Yeah, okay. And it's API compatible with UI Page Control. Yeah. Except that it doesn't support voiceover, uh. um, which was... A little bit of I didn't realize that until we'd done some accessibility testing. I'm like, oh, this doesn't support voiceover. Um, but I thought, hey, it's open source. Can I? Well, that's the key there. It's open source. It's open source. So I just uh, forked it, changed, um, added three methods, and that was all it took. So all I needed to do to get this FX page control to support voiceover was to have a method called accessibility traits. And I had to return UI accessibility trait adjustable. Um, so the way that page control works with voiceover is that when you give focus to the page control, it says that this is an adjustable element. And when an adjustable element has focus and voiceover is on, a swipe anywhere up on the screen increments the element and a swipe anywhere down decrements the element. Yep. So things like a 
numeric up down style control. Yeah. Or a slider, UI slider, you can make them adjustable. So yeah. you can increment and decrement them. Um so basically all I had to do is say that it was adjustable and then implement accessibility increment and accessibility decrement. So and then it just goes up and down. Yeah, exactly. By so one each yeah. time. Yeah. So I added those three methods in my fork of FX page control, changed the CocoaPod, the repo in the CocoaPod file to point to my fork rather than the original one. And submitted a pull request. Obviously. Submitted a pull request. I did. Yeah. Didn't want to mention that my pull request has sat there ignored so far. But I'm sure Nick's very busy. Well, hey, look, it's the thing about third party, like the the thing about open source libraries is that I don't think they they have any obligation. Obligation. No, I agree. The code is there for me to use as I wanted to. And I used it in the original form for the longest time. And then when I found a limitation, I've modified it. And my code is there for whoever to use if they want to as well. Right. Uh, And whether Nick wants to pull that back into his, that's fine. But yeah, so I submitted a pull request and um, still pointing to mine and should mine get folded back in, I hope it does, I'll change the CocoaPod back to the main one. But yeah. it kind of means that, um, and again, this is on a client project, that I'm still able to use that open source project. I think some people can be concerned if you use third-party code that you're stuck with whatever they provide and if you hit a limitation, then what can you do? Which, I mean, is the case for some third-party code. Like, it's not like you can change the library for Dropbox or anything, which is all closed source okay well i don't know if dropbox is open or closed source but some of them uh it's closed some that you imagine might be proprietary are in fact open source like um microsoft azure client library for example is open source which kind of surprised me i'm not surprised i'm not anymore (laughs) i can understand there being the whole we're open source but there is definitely there are definitely libraries that That are are closed yes yeah so you're right if it's a closed source library you're more limited but a lot are open source so like i kind of feel a little bit relaxed about Okay, I've got a dependency on the third-party code, and um, for the most part, I probably don't need to delve into it. I can just use it as is. Yep. But if I ever do hit a limitation and it, there's something that I needed to do that it doesn't, I can always change it so it does what I need it to do, hmm. and hopefully get my change incorporated back so that the code base, so that my app is not then dependent on kind of a really separate and unique code base that no one else has ever seen. Yeah, yeah. But either way, there is open source code now that behaves the way that I wanted it to. Yeah. So it's kind of I feel reassured by that hmm. process. So if if it's if if I'm allowed to actually say some stuff, no, oh. that's all we've got time for today. You've been listening to Mobile Cat, <laughs> the so show I, where we I played mobile. Some, I played with some Hanik as well in this past week. So I thought maybe I could maybe we could have a chat about that. I was playing with some um, with custom fetches. Cool. What, what does that? So what? I'm very they, fetching. In, <laughs> <laughs> what problem? did you run into that led you down the path of a custom fetcher and what is a custom fetcher? All right. The reason that you and I love Hanik is because it's so simple to implement, right? Yes. You basically can drop it in and make a couple of calls and you're done. And we've talked about that before. People, you should use Hanik. It's amazing. Uh, if you've never listened to an prior episode, it's a cache. It's a cache image. Lab. Yeah. Focus yep. very much on images, but does other well, stuff. Well, this particular one, so the the Swift one does other stuff. The yeah. Objective-C one only does images. Um, I'm using the Objective-C one, obviously. But that being said, what I, what I have done with custom fetches can actually be done uh, with the Swift library as well, because obviously the Swift library is slightly more flexible because obviously it does different data types. But a custom fetcher, so there are fetches like there are fetches built into Hanik already, right? There's there's actually three basic ones that come with it. There's a URL fetcher, so it's basically fetch this item from whatever URL I give you, mm-hmm. so a remote URL, pull it in and mm-hmm. then cache it. So there's a local disk one, yeah, disk 
fetcher or something, uh, and it will pull something from you know a file on the disk. And then there is a basic fetcher, which basically takes an image and returns an image. Yes, Swift has similar things, I believe. So Gifwrapped has items that can be both local and remote, uh, but also can be from a different from different sources. So, for instance, I use I, I have access to the photos library, so that's also a possibility there. Yep. Um, so what I've done is I've used uh, I've created my own fetcher based on those on the, that model item. So the model is the the, the model entity is a grid item yep. uh, because it goes in my grid obviously uh it will re- it reflects a thing that one of the images that comes that's in your library mm-hmm. it reflects either something that's in your library one search result that comes back or one item in your in your photo library so but to kind of cover off all my bases and be able to um you know pull in from other different sources i can either make it so that it's actually pulled in by Hanique and use their their fetches. But then I have the problem of if I pull it remotely and then store it, like store the image. Well, I can't do that with a custom with a, one of the built-in fetches, except to store it with Hanique. And Hanique doesn't support uh, animated images at this stage, so I can pull the image in, cache it as a thumbnail, but then pull it down again for when I want to preview it. But that's not particularly. Like yeah. that's a couple of can be up to a couple of meg each time yeah. or more. Like it can be gifts are not necessarily small. So kind of dealing with all that sort of stuff with the built-in fetches is not ideal. Yeah. Right. So I implement a fetcher which basically has three methods on it. You have a key, which is what Hanik uses to identify that particular item. Mm-hmm. You have a um a method that is called to tell you to fetch whatever it is and re- requests a like takes a block in this in the objective c instance i think it takes an auto closure in swift i think that's exactly when i was stumbling on yeah well, get, it probably doesn't data. it probably shouldn't be an auto closure it probably should be yeah like a closure a, a a regular yeah. closure so it takes a, a clo- like it takes a block to say you know to so that you can do something once you actually have the image yeah and then you have a method that will be called if it needs to be cancelled. Oh, that's handy. Yeah, so that I mean, because if what your you want, cell scrolls out of view, you don't you want don't want to continue getting it. Yeah, you might want to well, so that it's maybe. caged for next time it scrolls back. But that's up. To, that's up to you. Like, and you can yeah. take take care of that in your code. You don't need to. Yeah, you don't need to actually cancel the fetch. You just then don't do anything with it. Yeah. So you just kind of handle that how you want to. So I set that up and it, it worked. Worked mostly great. Like it did all the good things. Like if I did a search, it pulled it in. It acted like it should um didn't have to like it, it because it's all handled it kind of hands it off to Hanik without me even having to think about it really i just i can just i can just use the you know add uh set like the the um Hanik set image with url yeah so the the category on ui image view which it has that kind of being able to set a method set an image with a with a fetcher hmm. so then i ran into a problem because um using it with a search this is this was a really weird problem, and it took me ages to figure it out. They're the best kind, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, it took me it took me, a, I think, a, at least a day, if not a couple of days. And days are precious, mm. very precious. Mm. The, so, if you're using the current production version of Givewrapped, when you like open it fresh and you scroll, it kind of is a bit janky, and it will chug Stutter around. Stutter a bit, does it? Oh, it stutters so much. And I couldn't figure out why that was the case. And I didn't have time to deal with it before I shipped 
get frapped the first time around and it kind of once it actually loads everything in so it only happens once i yeah. figured you know it it's fine it's yeah. like once you get through that it's fine but then so every time you come back a bit it's like problem. it's the disk cache and the memory cache is fine this is well see here's the thing right because it, it when you do a search like the search search results list yeah works perfectly fine yeah doesn't matter where it's coming from because it yeah. it pulls like the image in and caches the image like the thumbnail image, I cache the thumbnail image, yeah, and then Hanik uses that as the source if it needs to, and you, then once the search is kind of gotten rid of, it kind of kicks everything out of storage. Mm-hmm. So technically, it uses a URL fetcher, but then a disk fetcher, but then it works fine. You don't when you scroll through it the first time, it it's smooth, it's yeah, really smooth, and I couldn't figure it out. So what was it? So it sounds really obvious when I say it out loud, right? When you uh, scrolling through a collection view, you want to make sure that things that you're doing as part of loading each cell are not being run on the main thread. Yes, that's right. It does sound obvious now that you say it. <laughs> <laughs> so what was happening on the main thread that you didn't realize was happening on so the main thread? So what I had done in order to create my fetcher, right, was yep. I basically looked at the existing fetches and yep. just replicated those. One of the things that they do is that when they call the success and failure methods for the fetch the method for actually causing the fetch in the first place. Yeah. Uh they were returning to the main thread to like to call those. Yeah, cuz I guess they're wanting to do the right thing by the calling code and if you're doing UI stuff in the success block, you want to make sure that's on the main thread. And so rather than make the caller take responsibility for switching to the main thread before updating the UI, some libraries will like put you on the main thread before they call your callback just so that if you happen to touch UI stuff, you're back on the main thread. Right. Except if you return to the main thread and the image needs to be resized by Hanik. Yeah, you don't want to do that on the main thread, do you? Uh, it will take a handful of milliseconds usually. Yeah, but that's just enough to stop everything. But that's enough across four images Yeah. Uh, per cell on iPhone. That's enough to kind of make it really janky. Yeah. Like really janky. And you don't want that. Mm. So. Uh, what I I mean the the fix was easy. I just didn't return to the main thread. I just left it in the background thread. Right, and then in your success block, when you need to update the U, you, you, yeah, you view you switch to the main thread. Right, so just I mean, at the last I already when you need to, I already had it in the main thread. Right, yeah. like I already had a call to make sure that that was in the main thread because I know because part of you know oh, I'm doing this that's probably going to be asynchronous. I'm just going to make sure I'm on the main thread because yep. it seems like the right thing to do. So I always kind of have those. But yeah, I think it didn't yeah. kind of, it was a bit weird. Solved the problem and now it's smooth as anything. Are you going to say it scrolls like butter? Scrolls like butter. Or delicious rivers of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's definitely all we have time for today though. Oh, I've got a unique bug. Oh, oh. But you talked all that time. It's really quick. <laughs> I wish it was really quick to find. I've been using Hanik in a couple of apps, the Swift version, and a couple of my clients have said, you know, sometimes these images look a bit blurry. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's just those bad non-retina devices you're looking at on. It's it's clear on a retina device, or it's just maybe the source images are blurry, or it's definitely not what I'm doing. <laughs> no, of course it's not my code. <laughs> um. So one in particular, I was using a collection view and I had different sized cells. Yep. And the source that I was requesting the images from has the ability to return images of different sizes. So yep. 
I had some code to construct a URL with dimensions in the URL that matched the size of the cell the image was going to be displayed in so yep. that the network service that returned the image could give me one the that right was the size. Correct size. First bug was that for some reason I was using the dimensions of the image view in my cell to cr- create this URL. And it turns out that in my UI collection view cell subclass, mm-hmm. it basically has the prototype cell is in the storyboard. I'm using auto layout constraints to specify that an image view should fill the bounds of the cell. So it's like, you know, top edge is zero, bottom zero, is left zero, right eight? zero. I uh, had a thing the other day where it was minus eight. Eight if you're doing it to the margin. Ah, you untick the box, constrain to margin. I should have done that. To constrain to the actual edges of a view, which you have to do if you're supporting iOS 7. But I mean, I don't know what I'm doing with storyboards anyway, because they're... Well, apparently I don't either, because... My image was constrained to match the size of the cell. Yeah. And in a DQ reusable cell with identifier, I'd get a reference to my cell. Yeah. I'd pass it the model object I wanted it to represent. And yeah. in the setter for that property, I this is where I was constructing my URL. Turns out the image view is not resized to its new size at that point, which oh. is just weird. The cell is. So if I look, if I put a breakpoint in there and I look at the bounds of the cell, the fact that I'm, I'm in a big cell, I can see that. But then I have to look at the bounds of the image view, whose constraints say that it should match its its containing cell. It's still its original size that it is in the prototype in the storyboard, which is just hmm. weird. But anyway, I just kind of said, okay. That seems that's, like a bug. That's weird. Okay, instead of using the image view's bounds, I'll use the cell's bounds to construct this URL. All good. Checked with my uh, Charles debugging proxy that the app was requesting the full resolution images and thought, okay, bug fixed. They're not going to be blurry anymore. It's fantastic. Shipped it. Uh, the images were still blurry. <laughs> Definitely not your code. <laughs> no. Um, so, turns out Hanik has the same code in it. So in the category that you mentioned, the exact one, which is to set a image on an image view with a URL, it actually looks at the dimensions of the image view, yeah, downloads the image, the actual image you ask it to, and resizes it so that its dimensions match exactly the image view you're putting it in. Well, because that's not why exactly. would you want extra pixels? So it doesn't it doesn't shrink them exactly. It just shrinks them to fill. So and then it doesn't crop them. It just Let's them f- expand out to the edge. Right, but in my case, it was taking a like a lovely nine hundred pixel wide image and making it like two hundred pixels wide, and, and then caching that, and then that was the one being used in the image view, which mm. obviously is going to look a bit blurry. Yeah. So the fix in my case was not a custom fetcher, but you can specify when you that same call where you say set image from URL, you can specify a format to use, and a format is a function that's given an image and will return an image. It'll do some formatting. And the default format will resize the image so that it matches the image view it's being formatted for. I wrote like a no operation formatter, which just takes an image and returns the same image without doing anything. Okay. And now they're lovely and crisp. Yeah, I actually saw that the other day. You can because if you don't set if you don't set the height and width size on a fetcher, it will just assume that you are giving it the correct size. For the image view. Well, just you're giving it the correct size. Right. It just assumes that the size that you're giving it is the correct size. Yeah, no, this didn't. It assumed... like No, I, but your your custom... What I'm saying is your custom, custom format. format by set, by not setting the height and width, it just yeah. assumes that your image yeah. is the correct size and doesn't yeah. try to resize it before yeah. caching. Yeah, don't do any formatting. Just pass, mm. pass it straight through. 
Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was one again one of those bugs that took a long time to find and then two lines of code to fix. Yeah. They're always fun. I think that's most bugs really, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing about third-party code, right? Because third-party code, you have to wrap your head around it before you can actually fix the bug, which is why it took me so long, because I couldn't just, like, fix the bug. I had to try and figure out if it was my problem in the first place. Like, was I doing something wrong? Yeah. So, to be fair, and then, the, the source of all of this is probably still me doing something wrong, because yeah. I cannot for the life of me understand why my image view is not... like. Well, probably, but it could also be, like, a UI kit bug or something. It could be. So, I kind of... I, I went mean, you to- are using Swift. <laughs> <laughs> and auto layout. I, I suspect this is the case. And in, storyboard. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect this is an auto layout bug. So when the cell appears on screen, the image view is the right size. Yeah. So at some point in its life, the constraints are being applied properly. But in even if I leave it as late as layout subviews, and I do remember to call super's implementation of layout subviews, even after the super class's implementation of layout subviews has run and finished running, my image view still hasn't had its bounds adjusted based on its constraints so that it matches its... Is the frame bearing. adjusted? No, nothing is. Yeah. But the cell's bounds are bigger. Like the prototype cell is small. Yeah. The big version is is bigger and I can see that it has. And the image view, which will, once it's on screen, eventually match the cell during layout subviews is not. It's bizarre. That is bizarre. So I... I Still haven't fixed that sort of underlying bug, and it could be me just not using the combination of auto layout and collection view cells properly. If anyone knows the answer, I suspect it might have something to do with getting the. I think that a collection view cell expects its content view to use the springs and struts. What are they called? Auto layout mar- resizing mask. Yeah, yeah. I think that 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 might be what it is. So I definitely, I definitely use that in my. Collection view cell because it literally is just an image in a square box. Yeah, mine's more or less the same. Yeah. So I just have, I mean, I could write code that, like, write auto layout code that does, like, sets each of the individual constraints, which is like four constraints. Yeah. Or I could write one thing that basically says resize my height and width. Or you could just tick the boxes in the storyboard editor and not have to write any code. And to be fair, I'm doing. I don't have a storyboard in my code. <laughs> I'm doing more in my auto layout than just making the image view. There's no storyboard in my project. There's there is no storyboard in my project. There is only one. There isn't. There is a zip. It does it, my. Is it for the splash screen? The launch yeah, screen? it's my launch screen. Yeah. There you go. If you would like to read about any of the things that we have talked about today, you can check out our show notes. Our show notes will be at mobilecouch.co forward slash fifty three because that's the number of this episode. You can also. Uh, you can also get in touch with us and tell us how wrong we are, or you can fix our problems. Or I mean, we have a lot of problems, so maybe <laughs> you won't be able to fix all of them, but you can try. Send us an email. You can jump on the website to do that, mobilecouch.co forward slash contact, or you can send us an email the old school way. I have to interrupt. I'm sorry. I know. What? I know. Because we got an email. We did get an email. And I, I think it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge it at this point. Thank, should, thank you for the email. This should, should be we not the, have like mentioned it at the beginning? Oh, that's just, you know. That's, how, these, that's these, how normal people These do people it. that do their follow-up at the beginning, I yeah. don't know. I don't know what their But that's the Syracusean way. Yeah. We can just do us whenever. I happen to remember it. Um, <laughs> last episode, yeah, during the... During the wrap-up. During the wrap-up. Yep. Why not? Last episode, we discussed how awesome Android Studio is. Yes. Uh, and we received an email um, 
asking us, why didn't we mention AppCode? Um, mm. Because Android Studio and AppCode are both based on the same IDE, both based on IntelliJ. Yes, by JetBrains. By JetBrains. Mm. Um, and so in the ways that Android Studio is awesome, people that have used AppCode say that it too is awesome. It shares much of the awesomeness. And you can use it with iOS. Yes, that's the whole point of AppCode, that you can mm. use it with Objective-C and maybe Swift. I don't know. Probably. I assume probably Swift, right. Um, right. 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 I have not used it. I haven't used it either. Um, Although I've heard great things about it, I still haven't used it. Maybe it's time that I give it a go, given how much I was enjoying Android Studio. The, re- the reason I haven't used it in the past is because I feel like <sighs> there's ki- there's ki- it's kind of important to stick to doing things the same way as everyone else as much as possible. And I feel like I'm just a sheep going along with the herd here. <laughs> But there's good reasons for it, which is that you build up a community of practice around technology and people, um, you know, post tutorials about how to use Xcode's storyboard editor for setting up auto layout constraints, for example. Yeah, but or, you also have to have a tutorial for what happens when you when all of my syntax highlighting goes away. How do I fix that? Yes, true. And uh, a, a colleague of mine has been trying to use uh, storyboards recently actually might have suggested that he do so, which is crazy, crazy talk. But he has been using storyboards and his utility panes mm. in the right-hand sidebar of Xcode have just mm. been disappearing. Like, That's bizarre. And so he would try to, like, you know, set properties on his storyboards. And there's nothing you to... can only do in there. And you could, he couldn't because there's nothing there. It's just, like, okay. it's not, not available. So maybe it is worth... I, I'm going to have a look at AppCode. And, and have a more informed opinion on this. but yes. that's, So I hadn't mentioned it because I've not tried it. I've not tried it because I have this bias against non-Apple IDEs when it comes to Apple's technologies. I just, I know how much Apple are focused on their first party sort of tool chain. Yes, because, I kind of feel, because it's so bug free. Well, no, uh, it's full <laughs> of bugs. I understand that. But I guess um, I actually, the very first IDE I used... I don't know what I was thinking because I'd just enrolled in computer science and hadn't ever actually attended a lecture yet. Or learned it was anything Eclipse, about wasn't it? it? No, no, it was MetroWorks Code Warrior. <laughs> wow. Which is a pretty complex idea. It's certainly, I couldn't figure it out having never done a Hello World, for example. I couldn't even figure out how to get, like I had a textbook, which was Teach Yourself C and this is how you do Hello World. And I could not figure out how to get MetroWorks Code Warrior to give me a place I could type my C code and a button I could press to make it run. Obviously, there were limitations there. But this was back in the day when um, it was the idea of choice on the Mac because it had this library that came with it called PowerPlant, I think, which was better than the UI library that Apple provided at the time. And I think this is where their focus on first-party tools came from. They ended up in a situation where a big chunk of people building apps for their platform were building them on top of power plant using code warrior and apple would introduce new platform features and unless metroworks included it in power plant and made it available through code warrior no one would use it right and so they kind of lost control they lost the lost control of their own ability to innovate because their innovation relied on a third party kind of saying it was a good idea um and joining in and there was this sort of intermediate layer between apple's technologies and the developers and i think since that code warrior day days back in the olden code warrior days i think apple have now been since sort of in xcode 
absolutely like anti third party tools change. They're like, you know, you want to develop for our platforms, you use our tools, you use our frameworks because that's where it's all at. And I kind of knowing that history and knowing how focused they are on it, I'm suspicious of third party tools when it comes to the Mac and iOS. But I don't think I should continue to be that suspicious and I should give AppCode a try. I used Eclipse once when I was working in the public service. My extent of using Eclipse was open Eclipse, press play, hope to God that it compiles because it was Java that was running in it and I didn't, I don't know any Java. So I wasn't doing backend stuff. I was just doing frontend stuff and then make change, make all the changes that I want to make to the code. Press play again. (laughs) That was my extent of using Eclipse. Fun. It was it was horrifying. This complex looking IDE, and I used one button yeah. over and over again. And Eclipse is incredibly complex looking. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, if you would like to send us an email, you like can, that one, like that one uh, that we interrupt the closing uh, spiel for. Next, congratulations <laughs> if you actually listen to it, because I'm sure some people just start stop the podcast, skip to the next one when you when they uh when they hear me start wrapping up, but. Uh, if you would like to send us an email like that one, you can send it to uh, mobilecash.co contact, like I said before, um, or you can send it to uh, send an email to our just regular old email address, regular old email address. It's hello at mobilecouch.co. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us individually, you can do that as well. Jake is J McMullen on Twitter. That's J M A C M U L I N. And I am Jelly Bean Soup. And Ben is at NSConf. Which we'll hear about next time. Maybe. I hope so. We'll see. You'll have to tune in then. Bye. Bye.